All right, let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. Well, last week we covered one and a half verses. This week we're going to cover one half of a verse. So, at least uh, nobody has to worry about getting behind, right? <laughs> let's read, I'm going to again back up to verse 9. We're trying to keep everything in context as we go along here. And again, at the beginning of the chapter, Peter talks about judgment, and he's speaking in relationship to false teachers, but he uses these judgments of the past, you know, Noah's flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the angels from Genesis 6 who kept not their first estate, came down to the earth, cohabitated with human women, produced the Nephilim, the giants, the hybrids, if you will. And, uh, you know, we talked about the fact that some have argued against that particular interpretation of Genesis 6 because Jesus in the, in the New Testament and the Gospels said that there will not be any marriage in heaven for we will be like the angels. There will be no marrying or giving in marriage, no, which you would assume then based upon that, no procreation if there's no marriage. Although today marriage and procreation don't necessarily go hand in hand, right? But so they've said, well, Angels cannot procreate. Well, first of all, Jesus doesn't discuss procreation. He just discusses marriage. But our beloved Blaine, Blaine Buckle, who was up here playing guitar, 18 years old, comes up with something that I had never even thought about. It's kind of embarrassing, really. And I've actually not even read any other commentators mention this. But he made a very good point. As far as we can tell from the scriptures, every indication is that there are only male angels. So if there aren't any female angels, there wouldn't be anybody for them to marry in heaven anyway. Right? Duh. <laughs> Pretty logical. Makes sense. So again, they would have to come down to the earth and find human women if they wanted to engage in such an activity which God had actually prohibited them from doing. So at any rate, we're slowly working our way through this chapter. Peter then begins to make the point in verse 9, based upon these past judgments and the guarantee we talked about last week. Two things are guaranteed. Protection and deliverance for the children of God, for the righteous. And that's not the perfect people. That's just the people who have put their faith in God their trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and the salvation of their souls. There's protection and deliverance for the righteous, for the children of God, and there is guaranteed judgment for those who reject Him. And so he says, Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of trials, temptations or trials, and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. And that's where we stopped. And the other defining characteristic of those who are especially destined for God's judgment, they despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. So today we're going to cover those last seven words. But we are going to back up the bus a bit 
before we do that. Let's pray. Father God, we lift up this time in your word. We ask that once again you would uh, give us uh, insight and understanding that your Holy Spirit would quicken these truths to our hearts and to our minds. Lord, you're the good shepherd. We pray that once again today you would feed your sheep. Lead us in your ways of righteousness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we left off last week with the first half of verse 10. Especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. And so we spoke last week about levels of reward in heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about this. And we talked about the fact that God is perfect in all of his ways, just, holy, righteous, and so forth, and that everything in his universe is balanced. The only thing that throws things out of balance is human interaction. We're the ones who throw things out of balance, but God has created all things in balance, and therefore you have heaven and hell, you have right and wrong, good and bad, and so forth. And so if you have different levels of reward in heaven, then to be balanced, there would also have to be different levels of punishment in hell. Again, no one should want to go there at all. And just the idea that there would be different levels of punishment doesn't mean that it's going to be a fun place by any means. And just because there's different levels of reward in heaven doesn't mean if you don't get the top reward, you shouldn't want to go. Because the number one reward that is given to everyone who accepts Christ as Lord and Savior is that we get to be there. We get to live forever in the presence of God. But having said that, if we really love God, we trust God, we believe in God, we follow the truth of His Word, then we should want to excel. We should want to do good things, not to be saved, but because we are saved. But I want to just back up a little bit on this subject. Those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. We talked about this last week. The scriptures do seem to attach a high level of displeasure on God's part to sins of a sexual nature. And I want to do a little more investigation on this because it's such a hot topic today. In fact, when you look at everything going on around us, it's kind of the epicenter. You know, the transgenderism, the LGBTQ, all of these things, the women's movement, the Me Too movement, all the hot-button issues right now seem to be focused on this issue. We've got transgendered individuals doing story time with kindergartners. I mean, it's getting to the point of absolute ridiculousness and absurdity. And it would make perfect sense. The enemy, Satan, his desire is to destroy the human race. Right? He hates us because God loves us. He hates us because God rejected him, threw him out of heaven. He'll never have an opportunity to get back in. He's toast. But you and I have every opportunity to be a part of God's forever family, to live forever in His presence, to live forever in paradise, simply by accepting the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. He hates our guts. 
He's not stupid. He was the highest of all created beings prior to his expulsion from heaven. He's not stupid by any means. And therefore, it makes all the sense in the world that he would employ the absolute most effective means by which he can tear down and destroy the human race. And it happens to be with the very topic and the very subject that we're talking about here. According to the flesh and the lust of uncleanness. My argument would be you'd be hard-pressed to find anything more destructive than any deviation from God's plan for the physical relationship between a married man and woman. Look at the 60 million unborn babies that have been aborted since Roe versus Wade was passed. That's a lot of destruction. There's a movie coming out next week called Gosnell. How many of you have heard of it? It's about a murderous abortion doctor. It's a true story. It's a pro-life movie. Boy, they fought tooth and nail to keep that movie from being released. I'd recommend you to go see it. Gosnell. They call him the most prolific serial killer in American history. Not only did he abort countless babies, multiple women died under his abortion procedures. Gosnell. And that is part of the issue. When we talk about according to the flesh and the lust of uncleanness, one of the biggest motivating factors behind the entire abortion industry is that people want to have the ability to engage in illicit sexual activity without paying any consequences. They don't want to have to deal with the responsibility of parenthood, of bringing a child into the world. And so the answer is not abstinence, which is what the Bible would tell us. Kill the baby. Again, I will reiterate, I stand by the fact, I believe it's a fact, that there's been nothing more destructive in the history of this world than the deviation from God's plan for physical intimacy between one married man and woman. And even in the Old Testament, there are those who would argue, well, God, let you know, Jacob have multiple wives and David and so forth, but you look at the destruction and havoc that it wreaked upon their lives. It was not God's perfect will then, and it's not His perfect will now. Leviticus 20, verse 10. Now, prior to this, in the first part of Leviticus, God, who wrote the book of Leviticus, as He did the rest of the Bible, of course, Moses was His instrument for writing it down, it goes through a whole litany of inappropriate activities. And it uses the language of uncovering the nakedness. Just like Ham looked upon his father's nakedness back in Genesis after the flood. But it goes through a whole list of inappropriate activities of a sexual nature. And then in verse 10 it says, The man who commits adultery with another man's wife he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. Now that might sound extremely harsh to you and I, especially in a day and age where adultery is so commonplace. 
But the reason I read this is it gives you some insight into how seriously God takes these issues. Am I saying we should run out and kill all the adulterers? Well, man, there would be a massive population reduction, I'll tell you that. But it gives you insight into how seriously God takes these things. And shouldn't we see it the way God sees it? The man who lies with his father's wife, that would apparently be his own mother, has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood shall be upon them. If a man lies with a male, here we go. Boy, this is where we really get into trouble now. God only knows who or what might come after me for even reading this Bible verse. If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. Now notice something before everybody gets weird and crazy. I'm not saying you guys, but anybody who might hear this message or hear this scripture. They've already named adultery as a sin punishable by death. They've named incest as a sin punishable by death. So it's not like God is singling out the homosexuals, but they are on the list. They shall surely be put to death. Again, there's an awful lot of people that are thankful we are living in the age of grace under the new covenant. But Jesus' teaching took it even further because he said, hey, if you think it, You've done it. So really, the outward actions of the flesh are merely an expression of what's going on in the heart and the mind. Again, my point is, look how seriously God takes these things. This is very interesting. I wanted to share this with you. The United States is one of the few industrialized countries to have laws criminalizing adultery. Adultery remains a criminal offense. Now, I knew that up as recently as World War II that we had adultery laws on the books. I thought they'd all been removed, but we still have adultery remains a criminal offense in 21 states, although prosecutions are rare. But this gives you a, a glimpse back in time to the values that our nation once adhered to and subscribed to that our lawmakers, can you even imagine the lawmakers today making a law like that? <laughs> Massachusetts, Idaho, Oklahoma, Michigan, and Wisconsin consider adultery a felony, while in other states it is a misdemeanor. It is a Class B misdemeanor in New York and Utah and a Class I felony in Wisconsin. Penalties vary from $10 fine, Maryland, to life sentence, Michigan. In South Carolina, the fine for adultery is up to $500 and or imprisonment for no more than one year. South Carolina Code 16-15-60. And South Carolina divorce laws deny alimony to the adulterous spouse. Up until the mid-20th century, most U.S. states, especially southern and northeastern states, 
had laws against fornication, adultery, or cohabitation. These laws have gradually been abolished or struck down by courts as unconstitutional. The same courts that have told us gay marriage is constitutional. That's why the victory we just had with the Supreme Court is so significant. We've been blessed by our founding fathers with a document that if properly interpreted guarantees our individual rights and freedoms and also guarantees a nation that follows God's laws. And there's been a battle going on for a long, long time to change that and allow the Supreme Court judge justices rather than to interpret the, or to interpret the Constitution or to interpret the laws based upon the Constitution to make up their own laws. And that's what's been happening as of late. One example, Roe versus Wade. There's no guarantee in our Constitution for people to kill unborn babies. That was legislated by liberal Supreme Court justices. There's no guarantee in our Constitution that anybody besides one man and one woman can get married. It's not in the Constitution. It was legislated from the bench by liberal Supreme Court justices. Do you know why we just had such a battle? That's the very reason why. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 6. This is a powerful passage of Scripture in the New Testament. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? See, Gnosticism, one of the early heresies in the church, separated the physical from the spiritual. And their teaching was, and it doesn't matter what you do with your physical body because your relationship with God is purely spiritual and you can separate them, but that's not the way it works. God created us as an integrated person, body, soul, and spirit, not separate. Therefore, and again, otherwise, why would God promise to raise our physical bodies from the death? Christ's redemption on the cross includes all of who we are. Jesus has a physical body, does he not? And we are promised to have immortal, imperishable, glorified bodies like that of Christ. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who has joined, listen to this now. Well, and again, we know that sadly, traditionally, historically, uh, many people have practiced a kind of, um, you know, it doesn't matter. And again, this is where women have a right to make an argument. This traditional practice of men having mistresses on the side, although it hasn't been exclusively with men, they are probably the bigger perpetrators. The idea that it doesn't really matter how many mistresses you have or how many prostitutes you go to, as long as you come home to your wife at the end of the day or the next morning. But listen to this. And again, it cuts both ways. And I would argue that you can't just stop at, well, our, our idea of a harlot would be someone who charges for her services, right? 
or his. I think it goes beyond that. Any illicit relationship. Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, quoting from the book of Genesis, the two, he says, he who, God says, shall become one flesh. But he who was joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Run from it. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body, which has been saved or created by God, and if you're a believer, saved by God. So what is Paul telling us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? God has created within the human being something that's kind of magical, mystical, probably beyond our ability to really explain it. But he talks about the two shall become one. There is a joining that takes place when two people come together in physical intimacy. It is physical and it is spiritual. There's a bonding. And Paul is telling us, even if you do that with a harlot, you've still been bonded. And if you're a believer, you're bonding Jesus with a harlot, which I think he would probably prefer not to be bonded with. And here's what happens to people mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and psychologically when they engage in illicit sexual relations with multiple partners of any gender. Every time you do that, this is obviously an R, not R, but probably a PG-rated message, so I don't see any kids. That's good. But I think these are issues that churches should deal with. What about you? I don't think most will. Every time, and I've seen this, I've witnessed it with one friend of mine in particular. I mean, he's, he's been a mess for a really long time. Had a lot of different partners, a lot of different relationships. Every time you do that, you're leaving a piece of yourself with that person and you're taking a piece of them into you. God cannot be mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. God says, the two shall become one. God can overcome any sin that we've committed. He can repair any damage that's been done. But I'm telling you, it can be a long, hard road. And for whatever reason, some people never seem to get past it. My friend is a believer, but his life was destroyed by this kind of activity. Not to mention the physical aspect with all the STDs today, the AIDS virus, many others. There are more and more vicious strains of these various STDs showing up all the time. God cannot be mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. This could be the number one most important issue in the year 2018. And it's one that nobody's talking about. Because it's not politically correct. It's not popular. The world is telling everybody just the opposite. All the way down to small children. You should be able to do whatever you want with your body. With whomever you want. And even to the point of pedophilia. 
bestiality. And by the way, bestiality is addressed in that chapter of Leviticus. Now maybe for the majority of those here today, these things aren't an issue. You're not engaging in any of these things. You're not practicing them. Maybe you never have. Maybe you have. But there's a systematic effort, and we've talked about this recently. We're bombarded daily with this brainwashing, this beatdown that we are wrong, we are haters, we are right-wing, Bible-thumping, homophobic bigots to the point that we begin to think, gosh, maybe I am, maybe I am wrong. No, you're not. Because if you're with God, you're right. But the more and more people who do give in, the more and more damage is done to our society, to our culture, to our nation. And for the majority of the last 240 years, our nation has been a beacon and a light to the rest of the world, spreading Christianity around the globe. But more recently, we're probably more known for spreading things like we're talking about this morning. And so as we talk about this especially, especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness, well, Paul makes it pretty clear. Why is it especially? He who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. And if you go on in this passage, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul talks about the fact that you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Your body belongs to God. It's not just, well, my heart belongs to God, my spirit belongs to God, but my body, now that's a whole other story. It doesn't work that way. This belongs to him too. It's his property. I love that Bob Dylan song, I'm the property of Jesus. You've been bought with a price. You are not your own. You do not have the right. You do not have permission to violate your body in disobedience to the word of God. And you say, well, what about, you know, eating at McDonald's? <laughs> Jesus said it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out. Now, again, we shouldn't be stupid. Some of us are. But the much greater issue than what you take in to your body in terms of food and so forth is what you take in pornography, this type of thing, right? things that are going to feed all the wrong elements in your heart and in your mind. It's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out. In other words, it's not food and drink and so forth. It's what comes out. And what comes out is a result of what's been programmed into our hearts and our minds. Let me read this from a person named Kirby Anderson. It's called The Decline of a Nation. Each of the great civilizations in the world passed through a series of stages from their birth, 1776, to their decline, to their death. Historians have listed these in ten stages. The first stage moves from bondage to spiritual faith. The second, from spiritual faith to great courage. American patriots. Revolutionary War. The third stage moves from great courage to liberty. One nation under God. Indivisible, 
with liberty and justice for all. The fourth stage moves from liberty to abundance. We became the most prosperous nation on the face of the planet. The fifth stage moves from abundance to selfishness. Hello. The sixth stage moves from selfishness to complacency. The seventh stage moves from complacency to apathy. The eighth stage moves from apathy to moral decay. Does this ring a bell? The ninth stage moves from moral decay to dependence. Free health care, right? Free college. All the things that the socialist democratic movement are trying to push upon us, the Bernie Sanders, the Ocasio-Cortez. Everybody should get everything for free. And then everybody will be totally dependent upon the government. And they will have complete control over you including if you can go to church, where you can go to church, how you can go to church, what you can say and not say in church or out on the public streets. The ninth stage moves from moral decay to dependence. And uh, I won't, well, I know people who, you know, I'm fortunate, I'm blessed to work in the church. I talk to people who work out in the public arena and the difficulty of working with people, and I'm not... If you're part of the younger generation, I love you. I appreciate you. I suspect you're not the same. But for the vast majority of them out there, the millennials and the young people today, they don't know how to do anything. And it's not because they're stupid. It's because they have been deliberately dumbed down and not taught how to do things so they can be controlled by this emerging liberal, secular, humanistic, socialistic government that's trying to be imposed upon you and me. That is a fact. It's undeniable. It's sad. It's tragic. And it's intentional. The ninth stage, there's only ten stages, and this is documented. This is historical. They've examined nation after nation, civilization after civilization. This is the pattern. The ninth stage moves from moral decay to dependence, and the tenth and last stage moves from dependence to bondage. I would propose to you the eighth stage moved from apathy to moral decay. We're already beyond that. We're in the stage where moral decay leads to dependence. We are now in the ninth stage moving towards stage 10. Don't doubt me on this. The good news we're that much closer to seeing Jesus. You see, before God's people in particular can be totally focused on His return, which, by the way, that's where we're supposed to be focused. Did you know that? And yet a lot of believers aren't. A lot of believers say, oh, that, we shouldn't waste our time talking about the return of Christ, the second coming, we need to focus on the here and now. You know what? The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says just the opposite. The Bible says we should be looking up for our redemption draweth nigh. We should be looking for and expecting him to come at any moment so that we will be found doing our Father's business, that we should be focused on his eternal kingdom. There are certain things we have to do here on earth on a daily basis, just as part of, part of life. 
But our real focus should be on the coming of Christ. But until we are totally weaned off of the things of this world, our hearts and minds are going to be divided. You know that? Too many people have put their faith in human government. And now we're learning that that's not the place to put your faith. There's nothing wrong with loving your country, being proud of your country, patriotism, but all the things that have made America great. I just read about a guy. He was a uh, newscaster working on some event. I think he was a cameraman or something, some kind of a technical guy, maybe sound. He wore his MAGA hat, Make America Great Again. He got fired. There's nothing wrong with being proud of our country for the right reasons. But in today's world, you can't be. It's wrong. It's politically incorrect. But that's okay. Because what it's doing is causing us more and more to look where we should be looking. We can still pray for our leaders. Pray and hope for the best outcome. We certainly saw that with the confirmation of Judge Kavanaugh. But when things don't go the way we would hope they would and pray that they would, we need to keep our eyes on God, the author and the finisher of our faith. And we're just being reminded more and more of that every day. And that's a good thing. That is a good thing. One more comment from Kirby Anderson. The decline of the family. Nations most often fall from within. And this fall is usually due to a decline in the moral and spiritual values in the family. As families go, so goes a nation. And so what has been the very focal point of Satan's attack in our nation in particular, but probably all over the world? It's an attack on the family, right? And so now, rather than saying, well, a family is defined in the scriptures. We have a mother, we have a father, we have children. You've got, you know, aunts and uncles and grandparents, but the, but the uh, core family would be your father, your mother, your kids. Well, now they're saying, well, the family is whoever wants to be a family. All it requires is that you love each other. It could be two men, two women, more than that. You know, the dogs, the cats. The family is whoever you say it is. Well, that's not what the Bible says. Moral decay and the decline of the family. Spiritual values. Now, I thought it was important to give this topic some further exploration before we move on here in 2 Peter chapter 2. Obviously, we could spend the whole time on this, and we just about have, actually. But I want to try to do a little more here. The second aspect of especially those. The first aspect was the... Um, the lust, the uncleanness, according to the flesh and the lust of uncleanness. The second aspect was that they despise authority. Another characteristic of those who are particularly displeasing to God is a disdain for authority, both God's authority and human authority. 1 Samuel 15, 23. Saul has blown it big time. He's disobeyed God. God told him to totally destroy the Amalekites. Man, woman, child, animal, everything. He didn't do it. He was greedy. He wanted to take the spoils. And he did not kill the king, Agag. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed 
than the fat of rams to obey. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. That's how seriously God takes rebellion against authority. Those who despise authority. And we certainly see that playing out today in the world as well. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls. So he, he's talking here about spiritual leaders. As those who must give an account, let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. I would like to say that this is really happening in all churches today that people are actually obedient, submissive. I'm not talking about some kind of a slave fashion. But the order of the day, whether it's out there in the secular world, in the church, in a private Christian school, seems to be nothing but complaining all the time, arguing about everything, and absolutely no respect or trust for people who are in charge. Again, is everybody in charge perfect? Absolutely not. But the Bible doesn't say you only have to obey those who are perfect. If that were the case, nobody would obey anybody and we would have absolute chaos, tyranny, right? Anarchy. Romans 3.1, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Look at how our law enforcement people are treated today. Again, they're not perfect, but they can do nothing right. Basically, nobody in any position of authority can do anything right because we're just like the book of Judges where the Israelites, everybody did that which was right in their own eyes. Again, that is indicative of the downfall of a society. For there is no authority except from God. That means whoever's in a position of authority, one way or another, God has put them there or allowed them to be placed there for better or for worse. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Typical of human hypocrisy, the further we get from God, the more our society majors in the minors and minors in the majors. The things most abhorrent to God, sexual immorality, rebellion against authority, are embraced with open arms and the things which he approves are rejected and abandoned. Sexual purity. I mean, let's face it, young people today, if you're sexually pure, you're mocked. You're made fun of. You're a loser. You mean you haven't had sex yet? There was a time when it was just the opposite. Purity, virginity was the gold standard. Now it's just the opposite. We're told by Peter here, they are presumptuous. Let's go to Noah Webster on this. Bold and confident to excess. Bolder and more confident that you ought, than you ought to be. Arrogant, insolent, unduly confident, irreverent with respect to sacred things. Presumptuous. You know better than God. God, even if he does exist, and I don't think he does, is stupid. Do you realize what a ridiculous 
paradoxical, ironic statement that is? God is stupid. He made everything. He's the creator of all things. He's the most intelligent life form in the universe. I know better than God. Wow, you're pretty amazing. Give you a brownie button. Willful, done with bold design. Rash confidence or in violation of known duty. That's presumptuousness. These people are presumptuous. Sounds a lot like what we've been seeing on network and cable news over the last couple of years. They're also self-willed. Go to Noah Webster again. Governed by one's own will. Jesus prayed in the garden, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. These people say, not thy will, but my will be done. Not yielding to the will or wishes of others. Not accommodating or compliant, obstinate. So what Peter's saying here is that those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority are how they are because they are presumptuous, they're self-willed. This should be a gut check for every one of us, folks. Because if we're honest, all of us have struggled with these things at one time or another. Being presumptuous, being self-willed. The opposite of presumptuous is cautious, humble, modest, unassuming, unconceited. Gee, that sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Like the fruit of the Spirit. The opposite of self-willed, or the antonyms, if you will. Amenable, amenable, easy, manageable. See, all these words cut against the grain of our human nature. We have a new nature in Christ. The old nature would not necessarily want to be cautious, humble, modest, unassuming, unconceited. The old nature would not necessarily want to be amenable, easy, manageable. Manageable? Nobody's going to manage me. Well, what about God? Are you going to let God manage you? He can do a lot better job than you can. And if God is managing every one of us, boy, there's going to be peace and harmony like nobody's business. This is how we are to be as humble servants of Christ. How many... Closing question for us all to ponder this morning. How many who identify as believers are humble, modest, unassuming, unconceited, amenable, easy, manageable versus the opposite? And I'll read this verse as we close from King David, Psalm 139, 23, and 24. This is a prayer for each and every one of us. Search me, O God, and know my heart. He knows this better than we know ourselves. You know that, right? Try me. Test me. Know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Amen? We're going to close the service with communion. For time constraints, the easiest most effective way to do that is as we are worshiping, we will invite you all to come. We have the elements on both sides. As we're worshiping, you can go at your own pace. Take the communion. Take it back to your chair.
partake as you prepare your heart before the Lord. We know 1 Corinthians 11 says, just as we read this psalm just now from David, same thing. Search our heart. Let God search your heart. Let a man examine himself before he partakes. Let a woman examine herself before she partakes. If you're not a believer here today, I suspect that just about everybody is. If you're not, I would encourage you to abstain unless you're ready to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, to confess your sins before God, ask for forgiveness, and then take communion as an acknowledgement that you've accepted the body and the blood of Christ for the salvation of your soul. If you've not done that, you should hold back. But if you have, then it's open to all believers. No religious affiliation is required, no denominational affiliation, only an affiliation with Christ as your Lord and Savior. Let's stand. We're told in the scriptures that the, the, the cracker, the wafer, the matzah, we use the Jewish matzah as the unleavened bread because leaven represents sin and Christ knew no sin. He became sin in our place. The unleavened bread represents the fact that our Savior was broken. His body was broken for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So we partake of the bread first in acknowledgement of his broken body. By his stripes we are healed. He was beaten beyond recognition. He, he didn't even hardly look human, we're told. By the time the beating was completed. And then he was nailed to the cross. So we remember his body broken for us and then his blood poured out, the juice, the cup, the blood of Christ which washes us and cleanses us from all sin if we receive it. If we receive his sacrifice, his redemption, his completed work on the cross of Calvary. So these are what the things that we are acknowledging. The broken body, the blood shed for us until he comes again. And so we're also reminded that he promised to return and to receive us unto himself. We don't do it as a religious exercise. We don't do it to try and earn favor with God. We do it because we've already received favor from God, His grace and His mercy, and we celebrate His grace and His mercy as we take the cup together. Let's pray. Father God, as we prepare now to partake of the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, Communion, there are different names for it. We are reminded of the incredible sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on our behalf. The intense suffering he went through, not only physically, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually. So much so that he sweated drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he even prayed if there was possibly another way that that cup could pass from him. But he knew that he must endure it for our sakes. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Father, we ask now that your Holy Spirit would search our hearts as we worship together. Prepare our hearts, Lord. Remind us of anything we might need to confess before you, any unrepented sin, that we might become before you in a worthy manner, and that as we partake of communion today, it would be an outward acknowledgement of that which you have done inside our hearts and minds. Lord, we know that they are symbolic. They are merely representations 
of the body and the blood of Christ, but we have been commanded to do this as often as we do it in remembrance of you, Lord Jesus, and we remember you today. We honor you. We praise you. We thank you for dying for us, for laying down your life that we might live. God, we ask you to bless these elements as we partake together. In Jesus' name, amen.